there's a weird snobbiness in the industry where people are like, I used to do single family houses, but I won't touch them anymore because I've graduated to multifamily. I'm like, (laughs) but like, what did you do the other nine months of the year? Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Chapman, what's going on, brother man? How are you? What's happening? Long time. I think you were in a different country the last time we spoke a week ago. Yeah, man, it's been a it's been a wild ride. Same country, different side of the island. So same island, different side. So before I was on the sunrise side, and now I'm on the sunset side. And finishing up the trip over here and jetting on back to good old ATL. So what's going on in your world? Man, just got back from Rock Hill. We went to Charlotte yesterday to look at one of our 70 unit assets, whip that one into shape and back here doing some content today and trying to find some more deals. Happy to be a part of it, brother. Bring us up to speed. Where are you at right now with your assets under management? And what's the cash flow looking like right now? And then we'll back it up into the origin story of how you got to it and how you acquired it. Sure. So I have about 70 rental properties that are my own. And then I say that are my own. I have 60 units that I'm the sole owner of. And that consists of a couple of fourplexes, 10 or 11 duplexes, and a bunch of single family houses. And I have two duplexes and a fourplex that I own in a partnership with my brother. And then I, with a couple of other guys, we have syndicated four projects. Me and my partners have a 54 unit in Newton, Georgia, a 70 unit in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and a 45 unit in Hampton, Virginia. And I've worked with a much larger group on a 350 unit in South Houston. So the cash flow just depends on a lot of variables. In theory, it should be $10,000 a month. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. But when you, you, what you find as you continue to buy these cash flowing assets is that it doesn't always work out like it did on the spreadsheet before you bought them. But Say more on that. There is a, when you buy an asset, you, all you can really do is guess at how, exactly how it's going to perform, right? You look at your expenses and you're like, okay, how much is my mortgage? How much is my interest? And then how much is my insurance and how much is my tax? I hope my insurance doesn't go up, but my taxes doesn't go up and it, they always will, right? And then you have your maintenance expenses and your CapEx and your vacancy and your property management expenses, which are all kind of variable, right? So you're going to get a fixed monthly property management expense. Like I'm going to charge you 6% to manage your properties, but then you have a leasing fee and you might lease it once in the tenant stays for two years, or you might lease it twice in the same year. You know what I mean? So Hmm. that's a variable. What's going to break is a variable. How quickly it's going to get filled is a variable. How much, how long it takes to turn over the unit, how how long it takes to fill the unit. If you're trying to push rents and really maximize the rent, you're going to have a higher vacancy because you're testing the market versus if you're willing to put the unit on sale and fill it up quickly. So there, so it's, it just, it ebbs and flows. Some months you have to replace three sewer lines and some months nothing goes wrong. So you can forecast averages, but you really don't know until you turn around and look back. What is, what has the average been over the Hmm. last two years? And then even at that point, it was an average, right? Like some months you had to replace three sewer lines and some months nothing went wrong. 
Where do you see more variability between your single family and your smaller one-off properties or between your multifamily complexes? Because I know there's two sides to the coin because you have economies of scale with your multifamily, but you also have more complexity. So I'm just curious. There's no comparison. The smaller multifamilies and the single families have a lot more variability. They have a lot less economies of scale. They have you know, we can forecast pretty accurately and predict cash flow pretty accurately on our large assets. We pretty much it's easier. I always think about like when you're in like when you're in school and you, you learn about hypotheses and sa- and sample sizes and science class and like how you conduct those experiments and how you do those samples. And mm-hmm. like the more the larger the data set, the easier it is to smooth out. If you have if you have three houses and one of them the roof replaces, you're dividing the cost of that roof by three. And then like you have a pretty high expenses. Or if one goes vacant, you're dividing that vacancy by three, and that can be catastrophic to your flow. But if you have a hundred units in one of them, then now it's just a hundredth, right? So it smooths out the higher your unit count gets. The higher the volume, the more sample sizes you get, the less impactful each little isolated incident becomes. So this is an interesting lens to view things through now that we, I've been hanging out with you and a bunch of people. And I think one of my buddies actually invested as an LP in one of your deals, Vince Moore. Yes. Oh yeah. I love Vincent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So shout out Vince. What's up, Vincent? But yeah, so it's interesting to view things through a lens now. Like It's always hindsight's 2020, right? And like I have single family myself as well. And I guess really looking back on it, I do the co-living thing. So yeah, I'm pumping out higher cash flow on average than a traditional long-term unit. But when you really factor in like the HVAC roof, all the CapEx stuff, when you really zoom out, like it's exactly like you're saying. Yeah, the cash flow is coming in monthly over your expenses, but then CapEx hits. So it's more of a matter of CapEx. So the question that I'm asking is with the perspective I have now, and just knowing that this is just a game of mindset, not necessarily skill set, because you can acquire the skill set that you need to do whatever you're trying to do. If you were to go back in time, I know that question is freaking overplayed in podcasting, but if you were to go back in time, would you rather just start with the economies of scale and just learn that skill set out the gate and not waste your time with the single families or the smaller ones? Or what would you do? I hear people and I ask people that question all the time. If you had to go back, where would you start? And they all say, go bigger soon. For me, for whatever reason, I don't feel that way. So I still do a lot of single family houses. I still like my single family houses that I own 100% of. I still like flipping houses. I still, with large multifamily projects, you're right. Like single family houses are a pain in the ass. And it is like as much work to buy an apartment complex. But I personally, I like the diversification of it. I like diverse. I saw somebody one time say, you need fast money, you need medium money, and you need slow money. And what they were referring to, because I don't think they were in that in the apartment space, but they were talking about houses, right? Like you have rentals for your slow money, you have flips for your medium money, and they were wholesaling for their fast money. And, huh. and it's so true because as a syndicator, and that's what we do with the large multifamily properties is we raise capital and we buy it with our investors' equity. And so like our splits are typically back in loaded. So there's, there is a, yeah, we've got tons and tons of equity. Like when we sell, we'll make tons and tons of money, but that's in six years. Mm, It's delayed. Yeah. And we get a little acquisition fee, but it's light. 
you know what I mean? Like I do, I do a big project and there might be four, four or five of us in the general partnership. And by the time we divvy up the acquisition fee, it's 15 grand each. You know what I mean? Like you can't live off of that. And the people that are living off acquisition fees, like that, that I don't like how that incentivizes their buying and investing activity. Like they need another deal. That's a huge red flag. They need another deal to eat. And so they're willing to buy a deal that may not work out long-term because they need that acquisition fee today. I don't Can you talk it. a little bit about that as a side note for people that are listening that may be interested in being like becoming an LP, investing in multifamily syndications? It's a massive red flag if the GP, if like their main source of income is in acquisition fees and not in back end, they're not, they don't have skin in the game in the deal. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's another thing about the skin in the game. So like people talk about you. I remember my after we closed in our first apartment complex, my mom was like, oh, so now you have an apartment complex. Like you don't need these single family houses. I was like, what are you talking about? Like that, the, my acquisition fee from that apartment complex was like 15 grand and I invested 50 into it. So like really I, my cash position is like 35 grand less. So, I, and, and I'm not, and I want to be careful here to not throw stones because there's a lot of, full-time investors that that all they do is buy apartment buildings that are very great at buying apartment buildings. And they're like on the back end where they're selling apartment buildings and they're getting their, their promote and they're living off of that and that kind of thing. But there's also, there's a lot of training in the industry that promotes that like, Hey, look, you don't have to have any money. You can quit your job today and you can live off of acquisition fees. So you can, and I'm like, that's bad. That's right. Now you're in a situation where like you have to go buy a deal because that's how you're going to eat next month is the acquisition fee. So in that situation, it just incentivizes poor behavior. We waited nine months between two deals because we were not willing to buy a bad deal. We're not willing to sacrifice the integrity of the project. We didn't want to buy a deal unless it was a great deal. We had all these other sources of income and, and I'm buying three or four single family houses a month. And I'm only buying a couple apartment buildings a year. So what are you doing in the meantime? So there's a weird, there's a weird snobbiness in the industry where people are like, I used to do single family houses, but I won't touch them anymore because I've graduated to multifamily. I'm like, (laughs) but like, what did you do the other nine months of the year? Yeah, exactly. And another general rule of thumb that I've heard from some of my friends that are super successful in multifamily, once again, disclaimer, I'm not in the space myself, but I interview a hell of a lot of people that are. Another rule of thumb that I've heard is they're like, they watch out for people that try to sell on their syndications. They're like the best syndications and the best syndicators are the ones that just present the project. And they're like, okay, here's the project. Like, here's the numbers, here's everything. They always watch out for the people that are trying to push it on them. And they're like, hey, you need to come do this with me. You need to do my syndication because those are probably the operators that are just living off the acquisition fees in your example. Have you seen this to be true? Yeah. I mean, you can see that across any industry, right? You can smell yeah. desperation on people. And that's not that, you know, like you don't want to be investing with desperate people, right? Because like, how did they get in that situation? You typically want to be investing with people that are in a pretty strong financial situation. And because they're, your incentives are in line, right? You don't have to worry that they need this deal. If they need this deal, like what poor financial decisions did they make to get to where they need to make this deal? And do you really want to be giving your money to somebody who's making poor financial decisions? You know what I mean? And that's so, in anything. It's, yeah. It's, you remember it came from a corporate sales career like I did. And it's like, you, you see those people that you're, and I don't know if you're ever in sales management, but it's quicksand. It's a spiral for the folks that aren't hitting it because towards the end, what happens is the harder they kick and the harder they try and the more desperate they get, 
the less stuff they sell because they like like the customer can smell that desperation on them. And it comes off as, I don't want to trust this guy. Why are they being so desperate? What bind did they get in? They really had their shit together. They wouldn't be in this bind and be this desperate to close this deal. Yeah. And any exchange, the person that's going to win is the one that has the least amount to lose. Like It's the person <laughs> yeah. that doesn't care. So it's like when I was in sales, it was actually, it got to a point where it was laughable because I would have all the new reps come with me. I was an enterprise rep and all the new reps would come with me and they'd be so gung-ho about everything. And I'd sit in front of a VP or high-level executive and I'd just be like, look, sometimes I'd say, eh, I don't know if it's a fit and I'd mean it. (laughs) And then the other person would be mortified. Like I had new sales managers riding with me and they're like, dude, what is that? I'm like, we'll get an email in a week and they'll sign the contract if it's a fit. And that applies in everything in life. So let's back it up a bit and talk us through that exodus from your corporate job into buying these single families, these four units, 10 units, and then eventually graduating, putting on your graduation cap and popping over into the large deals. So I started off, I started off in the beginning of 2018. I almost got a surplus laid off from my job. I didn't actually, my boss did, he got laid off. And at that point it was just like, my whole life was modeled after being this corporate guy, right? Like I, I wow. like Mr. Corporate America I went back and got my MBA. They paid for it. I was like, I thought the coolest thing in the world was to be this like CFO at this major corporation and fly all over the world. That was just like the vision that I romanticized growing up. And when I got like halfway there, I looked around and I'm like, hey, first of all, my my boss lost his job. And I was just like, at that point it hit me because I looked around and like where I was about to get married, I was about to have kids where I live. You can't send your kids to public school. I envisioned myself at the time working 80 hours a week, giving my life and soul to this corporate monster. And then I just envisioned myself being like in my forties, with two kids in private school and like a big fat mortgage and two car notes. And I'm just turning the corporate faucet off and just like randomly, but somebody in, in Dallas, looking at a spreadsheet that's never met me, goes, oh, SC447H didn't perform well this quarter. Let's get rid of him. And so I was like, all right, I, I got to figure something out. And so I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. And I was like, oh, cash flow and assets. And so I started buying rental properties and I started putting down payments down and I bought two houses. And I was completely out of money and it was going to take me another year to save up to buy another, put another down payment. And so then I started reading other books about low and no money down and other mm-hmm. creative ways to strategy. So I bought some duplexes. I got them under contract, even though I had no money or way experience fixing them up. I partnered with a friend of mine that flipped houses that had some investors. His, they bought the house. He bought the house that it was two duplexes. He bought them with the investor's capital, added me to the title, fixed them up. I went to the bank, did a cash out refinance, paid off his investors paid him $50,000 for coming to the table, managing the rehab and bringing in the investors. And I walked away with $78,000 in equity and a couple thousand dollars a month in cash flow. And, Hot damn. And yeah. From there, I just kept going. I, I started networking like crazy, got a bunch of seller finance deals where I put next to nothing down, partnered with my brother in a couple of deals where he put down the down payment and I managed it. And then I, and then I really started taking off when I got comfortable and confident enough to start burying my own houses. So then I would take private money and I would go buy houses, properties, fix them up, rent them out, and then refinance them with the bank and get all the money back out and then go buy another one. And I just did that over and over again and bought a ton of my rental portfolio that way. 
started, bought, we did our first syndication project and we closed in February of 2020. And, and again, we didn't do another one. We didn't close on our next one for a year. So in the meantime, in between those two apartment complexes, like I burned 18 houses. Yeah. It kept me busy, kept me making money while we were working on the other projects. And then since then, we've done a few other projects. What was the switch that was flipped that convinced you to go from what you were doing to what was already working to something bigger? It was late 2019. And I read Joe Fairless's book called The Best Ever Apartment Syndication. And at the time I had 26 units and I was managing them all myself at a newborn baby at a full-time corporate job. I was leaving my house at nine o'clock at night to go check on water leaks, even though I had no idea how to fix a water leak. And I was, been there. I, I was been I, there. <laughs> I was Bloods fighting. in every way. <laughs> I was fighting and tenant fighting with tenants. It was all kind of shit. It was just like this is not scalable and this is not fun. And so then I read Joe's book and I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I'm going to scale my way out of this. And so I started my podcast, the rental radio show, and I started interviewing other investors and I started networking and that was what took it to the next level. It's a cheat code, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Brian Beers, he posted a tweet that he was like, he's like, imagine getting a random message of somebody saying, Hey, I'd like to have a conversation with you for an hour and record it. You'd be like, what the hell are you talking about, dude? And then he was like, but then say, Hey, let's do an hour conversation. You don't know me. Let's record it. And then I'm going to post it to other people. And he goes, welcome to podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone and so, says, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. Everybody does say absolutely. And I'll always say, eventually people start listening to the podcast, but they didn't at first. And I always said, like, I don't care if anybody listens to it or not. Like I get all the value from a, like continuing to network, forced networking every week. Right. And then force learning every week. And then the relationships I meet and the stuff I learn from the guest, the relationships I built through the guest are tons. And dude, like, I remember I I interviewed Gino Barbara. It was like my- I love him. Good buddy. Yeah. I'm going to his event in in a couple of weeks in Orlando. But I remember, I specifically remember a few weeks or like after I bought my first or second house- I was like very early in my investing career. I was running down the levee, listening to bigger pockets, like on repeat. It, it would just, it would play an episode and it would go to the next one. And so it came up to Jake and Gino's interview and the, and the, it started the intro was like how Jake and Gino bought 1200 apartment units. And I was like, skip, because that was so like far out of my capacity. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out step two. Anyway, fast forward two years and I've got Gino on the show. And I just asked him everything. I later went back and listened to it. So I knew who he was. And I went and so I asked him everything I wanted to know. And I just got a free hour coaching session. And a week later, I saw this like Facebook ad or something. It was like, for $3,000, you can get a one hour coaching session with Gina Barbara. And I was like, boom, I got mine for free. Dude, that's exactly what was the catalyst for my show and this show right here. And that was on, I was a guest on your show here recently as well last week or two weeks ago, time's kind of running in together now. But yeah, I just started it as a way to meet people. For me, I zoomed out and I said, okay, when I'm looking at levels of wealth, like what wealthy people do I aspire to be? Like who actually is living like a dope life that's very happy and having a great time? And honestly, dude, I was looking at these guys that owned, you know, thousands and thousands of units. And I was like, I don't really care for their life because they run these massive businesses and 
I was just like, I don't really know. Cause David Osborne's got hundreds of millions of dollars, but like that guy can't just take a day off randomly. And that is, so that's something that I like, I oscillate back and forth between and I like a struggle with. And that's, it's like one of the things like we talk to our friends in abundance about and stuff like, where do you, who do you really want to, what yeah. do you really want to turn into? Because I'll read a book like Stephen Schwartzman, What It Takes, and I'm like, holy shit, I want to go build a Blackstone. You know what I mean? And then other times I'll talk to Brandon Turner. I'm like, you know what? I just want to hang out on the beach with my kids. So it's like, what do you really want? Do you really need to build the biggest empire? Like I've always said to to my wife, because my wife is worried that I'll be a workaholic until I die. I'm like, I don't want to be Grant Cardone. I don't need to be a billionaire. I just want to be financially free so we can do whatever we want whenever we want. I just don't want to have to report to corporate America. I don't want to have to work till I'm 80. Like, I don't need to be a billionaire. Other yeah. times I, I like want to be a billionaire. And so I just, I, and that's just something I need to figure out for myself of what the end goal really is, what I really need, what I really want and what I really chasing in life. But I think everybody needs to kind of grapple with that themselves. Do you want to build the biggest bit? Cause you, your choices are going to be different depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Right. Yep. Like I, I always make the case for leverage and I always talk about like, you could buy one house for with a hundred thousand dollars cash, or you could buy $500,000 house with $20,000 cash. Mathematically you get a higher return based off of the leverage, but there's also there's stress that, that comes from that. And yeah. so if, and what do you do at five, right? Do you go and grow it and buy 25 or do you pay off those five? Now, if those five houses can produce $5,000 a month in cash flow, and all you really want is freedom and you can live off of $5,000 a month, we'll pay those five houses off because you really have freedom versus 25 houses, but all the debt associated with it and all of the, I got to stay on top of this because I got to make sure that mortgage is met. So it Bingo. really like, it's so weird because people will get online and they'll preach and be like, this is the only way to do it because this is how I want to do it. Or this is the only way to do it because it's literally the technical, most effective way to do it. But what's your end goal? Because it might not be, it might not be the same for everybody, right? You're saying that's the only way to do it because you assume everybody thinks and wants exactly what you want, but not everybody does. Some people want to hang out on, some people want to hang out on the beach and travel. Like you could be, you could have made more money and built your business bigger if you had stayed in Atlanta for the last six months, but you want to be free and travel <clears throat> Europe. You know and, what I mean? Yeah. And also it's what type of business do I want to build, right? So when you're building your foundation, what are you making your foundation from? And so that's why I tell people, like, we're talking about multifamily today, but it's like really having that end goal and the end destination. The point isn't necessarily like the end destination, just like goal setting. The point isn't to actually hit the goal. It's to become the type of person that does hit, the, that's, sure. a, that's able of hitting the goal. So you view things through a certain lens and through a certain frame with what you're trying to accomplish. And for me with this business, I'm like, okay, like I did the real estate thing. Like I had a house flood from a water heater. I had a house flood from a freaking washing machine hose coming out. And then they re and then I disconnected it and then they did it again. And then they flooded the house again. And so I'm like, okay, fun. Like <laughs> I can't really have that much freedom doing the single family stuff anymore. But then the podcasting thing started. And then I saw Brandon Turner. I saw Joe Rogan. I saw Tim Ferriss. And did I want to be them for the money? No, I want to be them because just for the sole fact of their lives are built around interacting with interesting people. So like, I'm not jealous of Joe Rogan. Jealous is a bad word, but I don't look up to Joe Rogan for having hundreds of millions of dollars. I look up to him because in his phone, like whenever he has to make a dial of someone interesting to talk to, he has such a rich and connected life with all these different interests. 
And yeah. so he has his freedom and Tim Ferriss as well and Brandon as well. So that's why I was just like, okay, what business do I want to build? I want to build something that allows my freedom. So then therefore I need to learn how to build the foundation of this while traveling around the world. Hence, here we are. So that was a very good point that you brought up there. That's very serious. And so what is the vision for you moving forward? Because now that you've dipped your toe on a couple of different sides of the pool, what do you see? What is the vision moving forward in your current state of life, at least? Because it changes. It, it did. It changes and you're, you get to the stages and you want different things. So like currently I'm looking three years out. So, you know, I am, I turned 37 the day before yesterday. So three years from now. Happy late birthday, buddy. Thank you. I'll be turning 40 and I would like, I don't plan on venturing away. I plan on sticking with both asset classes. So sure. I would like, I'd like to grow my single family or my legacy portfolio. I say, I don't like to call it single family because there's duplexes or fourplexes. I like to call it legacy portfolio. That That's like what I own, right? Not syndicated, not, we don't have investors. That's like my stuff. I'd like to grow that portfolio to about 250 and then grow the syndicated unit base to about 2,500. And I would like to have about 500K a month passive coming in. I would like to continue to do about 50 flip, but 50 flips a year and about raise about 10 million a year in private equity. And, but have the, like the employees and the systems built out to do that where I'm only working 20, 25 hours a week. So that's what my three year, where I would like to get now, I might get there and go, Oh, holy shit. I want to do that now. And that's going to require me to work 50 hours a week. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I don't know, but I would like the freedom to make that choice at that point. I like think that's I'd, what we're aiming for is just the freedom of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like I work a lot on this podcast and like I'm work, scheduled. I work, yeah. I work more than I ever did. I yeah. When you were in corporate, we work way more now. <laughs> like Saturday and Sunday do not exist for me anymore because like my whole thing is build a life you don't need a vacation from. For me right now, I'm in a sprint where it's today's a day, Friday's a day. Saturday and Sunday, I've got things that need to be done for like people that are paying me money. So then it's not just about you. It's not just me. It's we now. And so it's like you're and like with you, you're beholden to your people that are invested in the deal. So like now and you've got your family. So now it's more than you. And so it's just a giant game of figuring out what do I want right now and aiming for that squat, acquiring new skill sets. And then, but also having and maintaining the flexibility throughout the process. Cause like me and you were just talking and later today I'm booked back to back on calls, but here's the thing. I'm going to cancel the calls because for me, I've got to do this, right? Like me and you are doing this right now. And this is fantastic, but I'm so freaking like, I can't show up hundred percent for those calls and those aren't need to haves. So I'm just going to move them, but you have to maintain that flexibility to be able to do that. Because then you just you're just building yourself a brand new cage with air conditioning in it, right? <laughs> like in a flat screen. <laughs> yeah, I always say I love that building yourself a brand new cage. I I say that a lot about people that want to quit their corporate job at, because they found about the like the financial freedom associated with with real estate, and then they go yeah. become a, a realtor. Or a property manager. I'm like, you just got another job. It just that's even worse. <laughs> it is even worse. I dude, I said you don't that. have health benefits now, and it's it, especially property management. It's terrible work. I remember I was I went from selling broadband to managing properties and managing properties. I'd rather sell broadband. Yeah, yeah. this is terrible because <laughs> you only deal with people when there's problems. Yeah, yeah, but that's the entire game. 
All right, man. That's freaking awesome where you're at right now. And it's awesome to see where you're going with it. So you're just tell people more about your syndications. If anyone's interested in hopping in, what deals you've got going right now and where can they find you or they get, where can they get in touch with you? Sure. I don't have any active um, raises going on this second that could change any minute. We're evaluating a few different projects, but we're at uh, my website's crestworthcapital.com. So I got a free ebook on there. If you know you want to learn more about investing in multifamily, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all those places, Sterling R. Chapman or CrestworthCapital.com. And then everyone check out the podcast too. Talk a little bit about the podcast. Yeah, the Rent Roll Radio Show. So we just hit, I think, like 45,000 downloads. And we've been doing it for coming up on, uh, what's the math there? Is it? Since we started in November of 2019, so we've got 160 episodes. It's getting downloaded five or 6,000 times a month. We've had awesome guests like Brian and um, several other guests. We've had, we just, I just got done interviewing Rob Beardsley. He's a cool mover and shaker in the multifamily space. I've had Jay Scott on a couple of times, Neil Bawa on a couple of times. I've had Brandon Turner on. That's a really cool, cool guest. So y'all go check it out. Sweet, brother. Appreciate you coming on and dropping the gospel. And I like the little identity conversation that we had too here, man. That's it always ends up, it always ends up transitioning to that at some point, man. But thank you for coming on, brother. Appreciate it. And looking forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks for having me. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, with that, that has been Sterling Chapman and Brian Lubin with the Action Academy Podcast.